I'm John Wyman. I'm the missions pastor here at Fellowship of Grace. And uh, today we're continuing in our study of the book of Romans. Today we're going to be in Romans 12, verses 9 through 21. And in this passage today, what Paul is doing is he's continuing to provide us some practical teaching on some of the theological truths that he presented in chapters 1 through 11 of the book of Romans. So what we get here now is, you know, the theological principles that we, we, we learned in, in the first 11 chapters, now we get this practical application that he's, he's providing. We put those together and we just get this clearer understanding of what it means to live for Christ, to live the life of a Christian. I'll give you an example. So... Uh, many of you know that I'm about the most untechnically savvy person on the planet. But for instance, if I were to read up on running computer cabling, like network cabling, and I would you know, study some best practices on, on, on the way to, uh, to do that properly, I'd probably get a pretty good understanding of the theory of good cabling and maybe understand maybe what's, what's not good cabling, in theory or concept at least. But when I were, if I were to uh, combine it with a practical application like, say, this, okay, now I can go, all right, because, you know, I'm the guy on the, what, you're right. The rest of you are probably the guy on the left. But now we see a practical application. We go, oh, all right, I got it. That's where, you, that's where I'm going. That's what it needs to look like after I've understood, you know, all these concepts. And we get a much better picture in the same way that's really what Paul is doing for us here in, uh, in Romans 12. He's giving some practical applications to apply to the theological truth he's laid out in, verse, in chapters 1 through 11. And specifically today what Paul's doing is he's teaching us about the characteristics of a Christian life. And if you have your Bible with you, if you have a Bible app on your phone, I'd invite you to just join and, and, and read with me as we start in verse 9. And here Paul writes, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saint and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not become overcome by, overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So as we go through this passage, man, there's a lot in there. I mean, it's a, it's a really great piece. And as we look at it, if you were to break that out, you'd actually see 30 different behaviors, attitudes, actions that Paul is addressing and talking about there. And it kind of leads us to a question of, you know, is this instructions? Is it guidance? Is it behaviors we're supposed to be doing? Behaviors to avoid? And the answer to that question really is yes, but more. What Paul's really doing for us here 
is he's using words to paint us a picture. He's painting a word picture of what it looks like to live a life devoted to Christ. See, when we talk about having 30 different you know, behaviors, attitude, actions, you know, if we were to view this passage as simply a list, there's a danger in that. And the danger is that we could start to look at it as a checklist. You know? So um, love is genuine. Check, I'm good today. Brotherly affection, check, good for another day. You know, that, that, that's not what it's about. Our salvation, our salvation is not based upon anything we did or do. Our salvation is based on what Jesus Christ did and nothing more. However, a saving faith does lead us to do good works. It leads us, our faith is evidenced by works that are pleasing to God. When we receive Christ in our heart as Lord and Savior, when the Spirit comes into us, there's a fundamental change inside each one of us that leads us to live differently, to think differently, to value different attributes and qualities and behaviors, maybe to devalue and put aside others that we might have thought were important before. See, different than a list, what Paul is describing are the attitudes and behaviors that mark or identify us as a Christian. When we allow God to change us, the result is the person and the lifestyle Paul is describing in this passage. And as we look at it, we see tr three truths that come out of this practical application. And the first one we see is that a Christian life is characterized by genuine love. And we see that in verse 9 where Paul says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Now, you'll notice here, the, the, the point or the teaching is not that Paul describes love. I mean, that's true. He is describing what love looks like, okay? But really, there's a lot more to it. What Paul's saying is, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, one who imitates and patterns his or her life after Christ, who you are and what you are is a person whose love is genuine and pure, Less, less about characterizing the word love. This passage is about characterizing the person who lives a life with this love and that love is expressed in the way that they live. That's what Paul is getting to here. Now, if we look at the word characteristic or characterize, what we're really talking about is determining the nature of someone or something. Understanding what we can expect from someone. You know, how we're known or what we're known for. You know, if we were to think of words that we might characterize people we know, if I were to, you know, come up to you and, and, and ask you about someone at work, and you would describe someone, and, you know, this person works in this part of the company, and, uh, yeah, they're kind of a calm person. That would perhaps give in your mind, a, you'd have a picture of someone who is steady, generally poised. Uh, you can count on them generally to keep their composure. That would be a word picture you would automatically generate in your head as a result of someone describing him as calm. On the other hand, if you were, if you were to ask about another person at, at, this, at, at work, and say, yeah, yeah, he or she, they really know what they're doing, but you know, they're a bit abrasive. Well, then you might get a picture in your mind of someone who maybe is harsh in their words or their attitude towards others. Maybe not particularly caring, maybe insensitive to the feelings of others not particularly helpful in stressful times. We just, we just naturally get these pictures of how someone is 
characterized. It becomes what they're known for. In the same way, genuine love characterizes a Christian. It defines who we are. It's the foundation for a Christian life. The truth is, genuine love is what holds that life up and holds that life together. Paul says so in Colossians 3.14 when he says, and he writes to the, the church at Colossae and he says, and above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Jesus taught the same thing as well. He taught that, that, the, that love marks us and characterizes as his disciples. John records this in, in John 13, verses 34 and 35, where Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You know, a moment ago I mentioned that as we read this passage, we see 30 different behaviors, actions, attitudes in there. Love is first for a reason, and that's because it helps and leads us to follow and live out the other 29. If we're going to be honest, these are hard for us. You know, if we were to lay out our Bible and just go through these passages... It is, it is very likely that every person in the room could point to at least one passage and go, that one's tough for me. That one doesn't come naturally for me. I got work at that one. I need help with that one. Without genuine love, we might struggle with showing brotherly affection. Maybe we have trouble regularly and fervently praying. It might be tough for us to associate with people we consider lowly. Some of us might even prefer our natural tendency to just return evil for evil. See, genuine love is what holds the rest of these possible, that makes the rest of these possible. But let's for a moment make sure we understand genuine love as God defines it here. When we say genuine, we're saying it's not fake. It's not hypocritical. It's not our our public face that we show everybody else, but, you know, when nobody's listening, we're kind of like over here. It's constant in all times and in all circumstances. It's caring and loving, even when it's hard and even when it's inconvenient. It also means being honest with people without being judgmental or mean. Folks, popular thinking these these days says love is polite. It's not telling people no. It's not telling people they can't do whatever they want to do. It's about being nice. That's just flat out wrong. That is just plain wrong. Genuine love is not about being nice. Genuine love is about a desire inside of us to see others experience God's love, his forgiveness, and his peace. That's what genuine love is about. It's not just about someone's current earthly situation. That's true. We are concerned about that. Our love leads us to have an interest and a concern for folks' uh, earthly um, situation. But more importantly, deeper than that, it leads us to have a desire and a concern for their eternal situation, their eternal condition. It requires our time. It requires our personal commitment and investment in the lives of others. A willingness to be vulnerable. A willingness to use the blessings God has given out that we can pour back in to other people. But it also results in a great change in us. See, when we have genuine love, we completely reject evil. See, Paul didn't write, turn away from evil. Paul didn't say, reduce to evil. Paul used some pretty strong... Paul said, abhor it, hate it, despise it, 
Have no room for it. Don't have anything to do with it. That's how strong an emotion Paul is describing here. But please, let's all understand that it's evil that we hate, not people. We love people. We hate evil. When evil comes on the scene, it, it never leaves things better than when, before it came. It just never does. You know? It always causes hurt. It causes sorrow, destruction, broken relationships. So when we have a genuine love for others, when we don't hate them, we hate the evil that's hurting them, regardless of the source. Like, it doesn't mean that we turn a blind eye to sin and to evil. We absolutely do not. But we have to ask ourselves, can we genuinely call ourselves loving if we take any form or or level of pleasure in the evil or the result of evil? I think the answer's got to be no. We could take sorrow that people made bad choices and are, are, are suffering from them. Absolutely. We don't take any pleasure from that. We don't like that. We don't admire that. You know, there are some evil people in the world. That, that's a true statement. But, but most folks don't actively pursue evil. Most folks don't wake up in the morning and just start immediately scratching their chin going, what kind of evil can I do today? That's not normal. But there are times when we might accept it. There are times we might fall into it. You know, maybe we get comfortable with certain behaviors. Uh, maybe we decide that we're going to make allowances for certain things and certain circumstances. Maybe we decide that our thinking has evolved on a certain topic. Folks, that's a dangerous place to be. It's a very, very dangerous place to go. Look, we live in a world that likes to pick and choose what's evil and what's good. And then often celebrate the things that popular opinion has decided are okay. And that can lead us to being dulled and to being desensitized to evil and sin around us. We get hit with this every single day, folks. Video games that glorify killing and destruction. TVs and mov- TV shows and movies that glorify suicide and sexual sin. News and opinion on TV that really is nothing more than personal attacks and arguing as people yell over each other while they trade insults. Laws legalizing and encouraging drug use. Laws and policies that encourage homosexual lifestyles. Policies that prohibit and even in some cases punish religious expression. But there are ways to withstand that. And and instead of frustrating us and instead of getting us down, it can inspire us. It can energize us. And the first way is to hold fast to what is good while we despise what is evil. Holding fast to what's good and despising evil, look, those two things go hand in hand. You can't have your hands full of good and, and throw a little evil on the top of it. It just doesn't work that way. It's interesting. Paul uses, an, uses the Greek word kaleo when he says hold fast. That's, that's the, and if, if you look up that word, it means to cement together or to glue. You know, it becomes inseparable. You know, if, if I were to come up here and say, you know what, I'm just going to hold fast to this lectern. It wouldn't take too many, probably one, um, to get my hands off it, you know? On the other hand, if a couple of you were to come up with some crazy glue or some construction cement and, you know, just pop me down here, I'm either going to drive home with this thing on the steering wheel or I'm going to leave with a few less layers of skin. 
That, that's that's the, the, the binding fast to good that Paul's describing here. That's the word picture that he's giving us. And when we're inseparable from good, we've made ourselves inseparable from good, and we're living genuine love, when that becomes what characterizes us, what we're known for, then that leads us to the second truth that we can take from this passage today. And that is that genuine love determines the relationships, the actions, and the attitudes of a Christian. Paul describes three types of relationships that are guided by this genuine love. And the first one is our relationship, our attitudes, and our actions with other Christians. And we see that in verses 10 to 13. And in there, what Paul writes is, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Paul discusses here 10 ways that our love demonstrates itself or expresses itself in our relationship with other Christians. And he starts by illustrating love as a brotherly affection, as a close relationship. This is, a moment ago I said, you know, there's, there's certain ways we can withstand and we can take inspiration against the evil around us. The first way was to hold to good. Well, this is the second way, to, having, to have brotherly love, brotherly affection with other Christians. See, more than being social, brotherly affection talks about an instinctive level of interest and care in another person. Don't get me wrong, socializing is good, but Paul encourages us to go deeper than that, to go farther than that in our relationships. See, socializing can be cordial, it can be pleasant, it can be nice, but it can also be rather shallow and detached. You know, it doesn't require us to necessarily invest in other people or make commitments in other people. What Paul is talking for is something much deeper than a social. Uh, social relationship. Rather than knowing about someone, what Paul is telling us to do is to know someone. Think for a second now about how we know, I'm going to call it our nuclear family, our, whole, our home family. And that could be whether they're brothers and sisters by birth or adoption or a blended family. It, it doesn't matter. It's, it, it, they're our brothers and sisters. We know what makes them tick. We know what their strengths and weaknesses are, when they need encouragement, when they need accountability how to reach them, what motivates them, what does not motivate them. See, really, with, without this understanding, we're not positioned very well to love and serve a brother or sister. However, when we have that, we can celebrate with them. We can recognize with them when something's just not right. We can tell when something's not right with someone we know well, and we can start to address it with them. We can pick each other up, help each other through difficult times. We just we talked a moment ago that we live in an evil, crazy world. We all know we need help, but what an inspiration it is to know that there's someone else who might struggle with the same things I do, who can relate when I say, look, I got trouble with this. I need help. Someone who has my best interests at heart, who I can call up or I can meet up when we need to, or, or just as a matter of routine to continue to pour into each other and lift each other up. Someone I can trust. I can trust to be vulnerable. I don't have to worry when I tell someone something that might be a little embarrassing or something I prefer not everybody knows. I don't have to worry about that going on Facebook five minutes after I talk to them. 
Someone I can pour out with my gifts. I can serve somebody else. Now, understand, brotherly, brotherly affection, it's a two-way street. That is not a table for one. You know, you have to enter into and sustain brotherly and sisterly relationships. But when we do, we don't just receive the benefits of a true fellowship. We give a great witness to what it is to live for Christ. Look, we're going to be honest. There are examples of Christians behaving badly. It happens, unfortunately. But we have the opportunity to glorify God simply by living in brotherly affection with our brothers and sisters. And Paul tells us one way to do that is to outdo each other in showing honor. Now, there's two ways you can show honor. One is selfish, one is selfless. You know, if I honor my boss because I think it'll help me, you know, get a leg up on somebody else, that's rather selfish. If I honor the folks who work for me because I want them to do something for me, like a form of manipulation, that's rather selfish. If I honor someone in a position of authority or a position of influence so I can gain something from them, that's rather selfish. That's not the honor that Paul is talking about here. Paul's just talking about outdoing one another because we have a brotherly affection for them. Now, look, I'm a competitive guy. I really am. Um, but outdoing one another in honor is not a competition. It's not one-upsmanship. There's no pride like, hey, I got the last one in. That's not what we're talking about. You know, we're not trying to be like the honorer of the quarter so we get our plaque in the, in the hallway or something. Look, it's simply giving a preference because we count others more important than ourselves. That's all it is. And we do it without being asked, and we do it without making a big deal about it. It's just an outflow of our brotherly love. You know, tendency is to kind of hold that back because we want to honor ourselves. We want to glorify ourselves, you know? Outdoing others in honor does not come normally to us. It's, it's not natural to many of us. You know, brotherly affection and showing honor can be hard for us. But Paul gives us six points in verses 11 and 12 that help us work through that difficulty. When you first look at it, it might look like these two verses are, you know, kind of out of place. Like, like how do these six um, points, you know, define my relationship or my attitude with other Christians? You know, we look at verses 11 and 12. Paul has a, has a negative and five positives. He says, do not be slothful in zeal. And he says, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. Well, the answer to that is, that, well, first, let's look at, at the word Paul uses. Paul uses a Greek word in there for zeal. It's, it, it translates to glow, like to boil. You know, that, that's what he's talking about. So when we're slothful in zeal, what we're talking about is we're not glowing anymore. We're dim, you know, like the, the, the fire's turned down. We're not boiling anymore. We're barely simmering, you know. And, and this, this expresses itself in ways like, yeah, I'm bored. I'm just kind of bored around with what we're doing. I'd rather do something else and then go out and serve. You know, does what we're doing, does it really matter? Like, if I miss on a Sunday, what's the difference? You know, I, you know that ministry, they, they can do it without me. I'm sure they're fine. You know, that's when we know the fire's going out. We're stopping to glow. The way we guard against it, the way we guard against losing the glow is through the other five points that he makes. We stay connected. 
We serve alongside others. We focus and look forward to an eternity in God's presence, knowing that the troubles and the difficulties we have right now, they're incredibly temporary. They're incredibly temporary compared to our eternity. And we pray by ourselves, with others, for others. The first, excuse me, the last five points here that Paul makes, fervent spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, patient tribulation, constant in prayer, they protect us from having the fire go out. That's what they're designed for. See, when we get disconnected, it affects not only our relationship with God, it affects our relationship with each other. When we're not around or we're there physically but like kind of detached or you know, not there mentally, we really don't have brotherly affection. We can't honor each other because we're, we're not there either physically or emotionally. If you're not connected... If you're not connected in any way, if you're not serving, if you're not praying with someone and for others, I more than just encourage you, I would urge you to try it. I would beg you to try it. Talk to someone who's connected and just see what happens to your relationships. See what relationships develop simply by doing that. See what happens to your relationship with God. Look, I, have a, I have strong ongoing prayer relationships with several folks in the room right now incredibly important to me. Not only did it lift me up, I mean, they energize me. You know, when, it, when a text comes in, just kind of like out of note, yesterday, you know, I was working on some stuff and, uh, you know, little, little, having a little bit of a pity party with myself and uh, boom, in comes this text at exactly the right time. And man, it was, all right, back to work. You know, that, that's, what ha- that's how we keep that fire from going out. We stay connected. We stay invested in each other. And we keep that fire burning. It leads us to want to contribute to the needs of others, to include hospitality. See, it becomes a want to as opposed to a have to. Look, just like we have all, spirit, all have spiritual needs, we also do have physical and material needs. That's a fact. You know? Genuine love and brotherly affection being invested in another leads us to share our time, our skills, our money, our stuff. You know, maybe it's just giving somebody a ride when their cars broke down. Maybe it's a meal after a baby's born or, or a surgery. Maybe it's name your type of sitting, babysitting, house sitting, pet sitting, whatever sitting. You know, maybe it's our tools. You know, maybe we just drive over and give somebody our lawnmower and our weed eater. I, it doesn't matter. You know, it's contributing to the needs of someone else. Maybe it's opening our home. You notice here that Paul doesn't say, when you need to, be hospitable. He doesn't say, hey, be ready to be hospitable. He says, seek to show hospitality. Search out those opportunities to be hospitable, to, have hospita- to show hospitality. Now, some folks get a little uncomfortable with that. They think, oh, my goodness, I've got to get the house ready and everything else like that. No, that's entertaining. Getting the house all ready is entertaining. Entertaining is about the host. Hospitality is about the guest. Hospitality is you don't care if your hair's done. You don't care if the apartment or the house is pristine. This is who you are, and someone, someone needs some hospitality. It's more important than see, see you with, you know, bed hair or something than it is <laughs> to turn them away, okay? That, that's what hosp- hospitality is, and, and it lets us to get to know other people better. It lets us to serve others better. It lets us to show honor to others. 
Okay, so the second type of relationship that Paul describes here is our relationships, attitudes, and, and actions with other people. And, and he describes this in verses 14 to 16. In here, Paul writes, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Look, we don't live in isolation from people around us. We don't live in some bubble or cocoon, okay, when we come to Christ. We live in a world with people who are Christians and who are not Christians all around us. We should never, ever be uncaring or indifferent to what's going on in someone else's life, even when it's hard, you know, even when they may be unloving towards us, you know, mocking our faith, snide comments or insults, maybe excluding us at work or in, in, in neighborhood activities. Maybe it's worse, maybe telling you or your child you can't bring and read a Bible to work or school. Maybe it's attacking the small business you own because you're living out your faith. Look, these are tough to take. These are tough things to deal with. And sometimes we do have to speak up. But when we speak, we bless rather than curse. When we say curse, we're talking about two things. First of all, we don't use foul language. Second of all, we don't wish harm on another, either with our spoken words or in our mind, in our thoughts. See, we can stand up for our God. We can stand up for our faith without dishonoring them. We don't have to follow along with the responses that we see so regularly to bring dishonor on what we say is our faith. We can bless if we want to show what a real Christian looks like, we might have to swallow our pride for a moment and pray for and bless those who don't treat us right. We pray for their heart to include their salvation. We pray for their well-being. We don't wish harm or dishonor, dishonor, disfavor on them, either in our words or our thoughts. You see, if you read what Paul's saying here, it's not enough just to hold our tongue. It's not enough just to you know, avoid wishing bad things on someone or to avoid bad-mouthing them you know, when they're not around. If you read this verse, Paul says, don't curse once. He says bless twice. Bless is the important part of this here. And let's be honest, that's not normal. That's not normal in our world, you know? But the counterintuitive biblical teaching here that is to seek ways, to find ways, to look for ways that we can bless people who may be persecuting us, to be different and to show a difference. See, the truth is about our attitudes towards other people gets to our transformed lives, that, that's the basis for this, about being humble and parking our ego and our preferences at the door. Folks, we can only bless those who persecute us and not curse them when we're more concerned about their eternity than we are about our current suffering. We can only rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep when the focus is off of us and onto somebody else. We can only rejoice when it's okay for somebody else to get the recognition and the glory. And we can only live in harmony with others when we're not insisting on getting our own way or winning every disagreement or every difference of opinion. Now, living in harmony does not mean we sacrifice biblical beliefs. There are certain hills to die on in our faith, and we don't give ground on those. But we don't tell someone that there are other ways to heaven 
outside of faith in what Jesus Christ accomplished through his death and resurrection. That's not harmony. That's heresy. We don't do that. But even when we have foundational disagreements with someone else, we can still live in harmony with others. But it goes to our attitude, not being haughty better than everybody else. You know, associating with the lowly, not think, well, again, you know, hey, I'm not going there. I'll, I'll go so far, but I'm not going there. No. That, that's the attitude Paul is, is describing to stay against. We live in harmony when we're not smarter than everybody else. We're not always right. We have an opportunity to give a great witness for our faith in Jesus when we live out these attitudes and these relationships. Rather than frustrating us, these can inspire us to demonstrate attributes, attitudes, and maintain relations that show other people what a true Christian really looks like that can have an eternal impact on their life by bringing them to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. But if we act like a jerk, that's never going to happen. Which brings us to our third point in here, the third relationship. Is, is, is genuine love determines the relationships actions and attitudes of a Christian with people who are hostile to us. And we see that in verses 17 through 20. And here Paul says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For, fi- for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, as we look at this, this passage here, verses 17 through 20, I want to tie back for a moment to, to verse 16 where we talked about living in harmony. And in addition to the ways to live in harmony we talked about, basically parking our ego at the door, okay, Paul also teaches us to give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Look, revenge is not honorable. Acting like a jerk is not honorable. You don't resolve any issues or any conflicts acting that way. Nothing gets better. You know, if you pay back someone with evil, that just means you're both wrong. You know, you just jumped in the boat with them. That's all that means. You're just like everybody else. And you know, there is a complaint that's heard sometimes about Christians, act like everybody else, you know, no different than anybody else. Well, you know, maybe sometimes that's a fair complaint, maybe sometimes it isn't. But the truth is, we can't control how other people act, but we can control how we act. We can control what we do. We can control whether we do everything in our power to be at peace with others. We can control whether we forgive, whether we can bless someone and be genuinely loving. Now, even then, there are cases where someone else says, you know what, I don't care. I am not being at peace with you. I am going to hound you and be your adversary every single day. And our response then is, well, okay, if that's your choice. But even then, we go back to bless twice, Do not curse. We go back to not taking any pleasure in the bad effects of that sin. You know, someone decides they're just going to hound and and just be adversarial and unpeaceful, and as a result of that, they suffer somehow. We don't take joy in that. Because, again, that's taking joy in evil. 
Evil's got to go. We have sorrow for that. We're, we're, we're sorrowful that they made that decision and they, they dealt with that result, but we don't feel good about it. We don't like that. You know, If there is to be an avenging, then that's for God to decide and for God to repay. God and God alone. This gets to roles. God's role is to repay. Our role is to show genuine love, to live in harmony, to live peaceably to the extent that it depends on us and to bless others. Now, as we talk about that, we do kind of need to talk about the whole burning coals thing in verse 20 for a second because that, that is a passage that's sometimes misunderstood. Giving your enemy food or drink is a way to bless rather than curse. It is honorable in the sight of all. We don't do that so some will have like their head burned because they you know, had coals on it, like as, as if it's some kind of punishment. That's ridiculous, Okay. When you look at that passage, there's several interpretations of, of what the burning coals passage means. The, the most reasonable and, and, and widely held one relates to an Egyptian ritual of repentance. And, and what would happen there was that the, a, an offending person would actually, they'd take coals and put it in a pan. And they'd hold it over their head and they'd walk around, usually back towards the person they had offended or, 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 or sinned against. And, and it signified that they were disgraced and dishonored and were coming in repentance. That's what that means, okay? They didn't actually, like, dump it on their head. So the point of this was a recognition of the wrong and a repentance towards the other person. So we don't bless those who hurt us, who injure us, to make them feel bad and us feel better. No, that's, that's exactly the wrong focus. The focus is about getting them to come to repentance because if they don't come to repentance, then they can't come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. This is all about getting them into a saving relationship. We want them to be repentant both for the individual sin or the offense here, but more importantly, to receive the forgiveness that comes through accepting what Jesus Christ accomplished through his death and resurrection. See, Paul is teaching us that our relationships, our attitudes, our actions towards those who are hostile to us is always aimed at their eternal well-being. It's not about our temporary satisfaction in being somehow justified or getting revenge, which leads us to our final point today, which is that genuine love leads us to overcome evil with good. And we see that in verse 21, very simply. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Folks, we can influence the people around us or we can be influenced by the people around us. Those are the two choices. There's no door number three. When we try to fight evil with evil, well, evil wins that round every time. Okay? The way we show love in an unloving world is by resisting the urge to fight back with evil, resisting the urge to, to be dishonorable in the sight of all. You ever hear someone say, Man, I'm going to fight like the devil? You know, like, hey, you know, we're going to plant this church and I'm going to fight like the devil to bring people to that church in that neighborhood. Think about that for two seconds, okay? So what you're saying is your church plant is going to lie, cheat, deceive, steal, and destroy. Sign me up. No, we don't fight like the devil. The exact opposite. We reject that and we repay evil with good. George Washington Carver once said, I will never let another man ruin my life by making me hate him. 
Look, we've got an amazing opportunity to give a great witness to our faith and to God's transforming power within us. We can do that every single day by demonstrating the characteristics of a Christian life. Let's go to prayer. Lord, we just, we just thank you for, uh, for the opportunity to come here today, to worship, to lift up our voices in, in song and praise to you. Lord, to, to, to open your word and to learn what it means to live in a life devoted to Christ. Lord, to put aside the anger and the frustration that we sometimes feel when we don't understand how to act. Lord, for giving us this, this amazing assurance that when we turn, Lord, that you've, you've got us and the changes in us are permanent and are good and we can throw away the evil, we can throw away the old things, the old things we held dear, or we can find a new way to live that glorifies you Lord, as we go out through our week, we just ask that you would continue to remind us of these principles, continue to remind us of these truths, that we would live them, and through that, not only would we love others, more importantly, we would glorify you and lead others to you. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.